diving into data. Diving, diving, data. Diving into data with T.C. Riley. Hello, hello, hello again, everyone, and welcome into another episode of Diving Into Data. I am your host, T.C. Riley. How are we doing out there? How's life treating you? Just rolled on into August, one more month of summer down here. South, man, I can't wait for it to be done. I'm uh, going to start the show with a little bit of a warning. Uh, those of you who listen frequently know we do come to you every Wednesday with a new episode. There's a good chance we're going to miss a couple episodes in the coming weeks. My wife is has baby number two due uh, pretty soon here. So uh, if it disappears for a few weeks, uh, that's where I'm at. Don't you worry. I'll be back with uh, plenty of details and maybe another, if you remember the very first episode we ever did, Data Driven Dad. Maybe we'll uh, dust that off and bring back another episode or a refreshed version of Data Driven Dad. But today, the title of our episode is There Are Two Sides to Every Story. And so both of our main topics this week deal with things that are, they're not controversial topics necessarily, but they are topics that um, I believe warrant more consideration of the factors on both sides. Um, The two main topics we're going to dive into today are remote working analysis and not only what the feelings are towards remote work in the country, especially in the uh, aftermath and coming out of COVID, but also uh, really more specifically on the data and analytics front. Um, those of us who work in the data world, remote work's been maybe a little bit more common, but I'm actually going to give you some reasons why I think that uh, even though it might seem it's one of the logically the first things to go remote and that you know the data work is should be disconnected, why that's actually probably not a good idea and why I think there's a lot of risk in that and why I'd encourage companies to maybe reconsider some of those strategies. And our second topic of the day is around the stock market. Um, Two big points we're going to hit on. um, Pretty much uh, in summary, the stock market is doing really well overall. I mean, for being in a pandemic, for where you look at the stock market, you could expect um, and theoretically project that we'd be in a lot, lot worse situation. But I think there's two big things that have really helped buoy it. And we'll kind of look at the pros and cons of each of those, but also why those may be the things that help us recover a lot more quickly maybe than any of us, including myself and even, you know, the really smart folks in the economic world out there could have ever predicted. Um, That is the role of the big tech, the big five tech stocks specifically we're going to talk about, as well as stock trading apps, the Robin Hoods of the world. So we've got an interesting show for you today. We don't talk about COVID here, but obviously we can't avoid everything that's COVID related. So two COVID tangent stories for you today. But with that, why don't you sit back, relax, grab a drink if you choose to do so. Let's dive into some data. Alrighty, so for our first topic this week, again, we're going to be talking about remote working, what it means, what it does. Um, I think you guys know those things, but we're going to more specifically dive into, I found some really interesting stats around it, um, kind of some perceptions, how we feel, but also as we look forward, um, working from home, remote work is something that's probably going to increase in popularity. Uh, A lot of predictions, a lot of people out there talking about how work from home levels are probably going to be much higher in the future. And while I don't necessarily think that's entirely a bad thing, I do think, again, based on the uh, title we have today, there are two sides to every story. I think there's some things that are frankly negatives with remote working that people maybe overlooked a little bit, aren't giving enough credence to. Um, So we're going to touch on those. Um, Again, we're going to present both sides of the story here. We're going to use some data to do it. Um, And then specifically diving in, talking a little bit about how this impacts the data and analytics world. Those of you who work in the analytics field, um, I think that 
it's a specific use case. I think it's, it can very well relate to a lot of other roles and a lot of other positions as it relates to remote working. But um, I have some topics that I really want to dive within with you on that I don't think every company fully considers when thinking about the general concept of um, all your analytics work being remote or offshore or whatever it may be. So as always, have some great sources that I use to help me along with prep for today's show. The first is a HubSpot blog um, that was actually published back uh, right at the beginning of March. It was 40 remote work stats for 2020. And that was a great article to use because I think it kind of gives us a baseline, um, a little bit more of an objective look than some of the more recent articles and stats and things you see coming about uh, about remote work and how people feel about it, given what we've all kind of had to go through the last four or five months. So I think it's a good kind of uh, level-based start. And that article um, cites Global Workplace Analytics, Owl Labs, Flex Jobs, LinkedIn, and buffer studies as part of their 40 stats. So we're going to list off a couple of those. It's diving into data. You know we're going to list off some numbers at some point. Also, great Forbes article I read about how CIOs are predicting after pandemic work from home levels will likely be over 50%. We're going to touch on that and some of the points it makes. Um, and then wrap up a great little article from CMS Wire. I found three tips to better lead remote analytics team. Great little article I stole some from. I learned a little bit myself, made me think about it, as well as a couple tips and tricks that I would recommend along with that. So again, as we dive into this topic, uh, remote work has become such a unique case study due to COVID. Uh, There's a lot of positions, businesses, roles, whatever you want to call it, that are having to implement working from home remote work in some capacity over the past five months that it never had before, didn't really ever see it happening. Um, Just due to the nature of the global situation, a lot of businesses have been forced to adapt and uh, hats off to a lot of the businesses out there that have been able to adapt so well and keep things going and moving forward with a massive change like that. Uh, Frankly, I think if you go back a year ago and ask people, hey, um, we're going to make you shift entirely remote over the period of like a week or two, you're going to have to make this work. A lot of businesses would just sit there and stare at you, you know, with a uh, terrified look in their eyes. But uh, a lot of companies did a great job, but it presents a lot of opportunities for both employers and employees, but also some challenges. And when I look out there, a lot of the stuff I read, again, I, I, I read LinkedIn a lot. I see what people are saying. A lot of the stuff I see uh, shared, um, usually it's by people promoting remote work. I think there's some great points there, but I also think there's some stuff um, on the challenges side that are, are missed a little bit or overlooked, or maybe people take a little bit, you know, the, uh, too much of a personal view on this and don't kind of step back and view it objectively enough. Um, you need to consider all of the personal and big business arguments when you're talking about a topic like this. It can't just all be personal. It can't just all be business. You have to consider both sides, um, the good and bad on both sides again. Um, and again, I, we're going to wrap up with if data and analytics is not kind of carefully handled through this as more of this remote work becomes common, I think there's a couple of things that people are going to run into they're going to struggle with. So we'll touch on those. But to start off, I mentioned that HubSpot study. It's a great, it was a pre-COVID study um, that they released this right at kind of the start of all of this. Um, but I think it gives some great numbers. So we're going to run through them here. So only 3.4% of the U.S. workforce works from home for more than half the week. So again, the entire U.S. workforce, 3.4%. We're talking about one out of like 33 people, um, one out of 32 people maybe, that actually works from home for more than half the week. So it's an incredibly small percentage. Now, that's including the entire U.S. workforce. Obviously, 
when you look at maybe tech industries or different um, industries, there's obviously going to be very different. If service and retail, obviously, there's a lot less of it. It's just not really feasible or possible. You, you rely on those person-to-person contacts. But um, again, keep that in mind. Only 3.4% of the entire workforce prior to all of this actually was working home for more than half a week. So what that tells me right off the bat, we don't have a ton of people that have a ton of experience doing this. We don't have a massive sample size to look at this. Significant, yes. Immense, no. Um, running down our numbers more, so 30% of tech industry uh, folks that were surveyed in one of the surveys said they work remote full-time. So obviously much higher, as I mentioned, the tech industry. 18% on top of that 30% say they did at least one to three times a week. 30% full-time, 18% one to three a week. But 35% of those remote workers are considered individual contributors. That would mean, you know, two thirds of them, 65%, give or take, um, are going to be above that individual contributor level. Uh, something about the on site nature, um, recency and tenure definitely matters. Um, 75% more on site people have worked less than a year compared to their. Uh, counterparts. So in other words, if you're newer to a company, very naturally, you probably got to get in the swing of things, get to know things a little better, much less likely to work from home. Um, but at the same time, it's worth noting since 2010, so in the last decade, the number of people who remote work at least one time a week is up 400%. So this is a trend that while COVID has um, that jet fuel to the fire isn't even enough of an accelerant here, but has really boosted this forward. This is something that has been trending in this direction. Um, and then when we get into a little more of the people side of these stats, 99% of people in this survey, which again, I, I would, I would almost have to question the survey based on this number, but 99% of people say they would work remotely the rest of their career, at least part-time if given the option. Again, I, I, that number seems astronomical. We're going to go with the data. It's in the study, 99%. That seems really, really high to me. But uh, from the people side also, 72% of HR professionals think flexibility will be one of the most important features of the future HR world. So more flexibility, including remote work, is becoming a bigger and bigger topic um, in hiring, in the workforce, in pools. Um, and 74% of people say that remote work would make them less likely to leave a company. So there's some more stickiness with employees being able to reduce churn internally. Um, so that, those are all stats that, um, again, it, it's showing it's growing. There's a good number of people who do it, especially in the tech industry. Um, while keeping in mind, again, only 3.4% of the full U.S. workforce was doing this prior to COVID. So still very small sample that actually was really doing this sustainably before. Um, but again, that, that's those are frankly a lot of the stats that I'm going to see on LinkedIn when I'm coming through. I'm going to see a lot of these things being regurgitated and people speaking to that. But a couple of the stats that stood out to me that I think that, again, people are maybe turning a little bit of a blind eye to um, the maybe not so positive stats. First, more than one half of remote employees feel disconnected from their team. A major concern. We're going to get right back into that and really and dive into that more in a second. 19% of remote workers report that loneliness is their biggest challenge. So nothing they're doing with work, nothing the technical nature of their job, not computer issues, not nothing else, not personnel issues. No, loneliness of being a remote worker. Again, losing that camaraderie ties in with being disconnected to a team, being disconnected to a company. And then additionally, less than 50% of people say they have proper internet security training for secure work remotely. Another thing that I think gets massively overlooked is that we, we've we done a pretty good job in this country and a lot of big companies do a great job of really securing their network, securing their folks that are in-house working there. However, 
all of a sudden everyone just shifted home. And yes, a lot of people can use VPNs, they can do other stuff, but there's a lot more risk when I'm connecting in through my home Wi-Fi network to our office um, or even dialing into the VPN using this local internet uh, that are not present whenever I'm actually connected on premise to the network. So that's something we're not going to dive too much into that, but given the way that ties into some of our past topics around data security, um, I do think internet security and making sure people really understand and not only understand the risks and understand what they need to be doing, but also have the proper infrastructure um, and security uh, systems in place through home networks are something that gets overlooked way too often. So again, when we're talking about this, I'm not here to convince you one way or another on this, um, but I I think that I boiled it down to kind of five points, two pros, two cons, and one neutral that I think to me, at least personally, kind of summarizing the entire thing. So a pro employees feel generally positively um, towards working from home remote work and productivity won't be impacted. That's the employee's view. That's that's absolutely you want your employees to be happy. You want them to feel good. You want them to feel secure. Um, I will note on that productivity statement that the data goes both ways on that. It does not necessarily uh, a lot of people seem to um, promote stats that you know, everyone who works from home is more productive or at least as productive. Uh, there are definitely folks out there, frankly, that are much less productive that are not made for home environment. I think uh, maybe it's some of the same folks. When I think back to school, um, I always craved that learning structure and did a lot better in classes um, than I ever did uh, if I was sick and working from home or something like that. Because, hey, it's, it's easy to get distracted. You don't have um, that camaraderie in the group around you all learning the same type of thing. So there's absolutely something to say there. But again, a pro is definitely that employees feel positively. Another pro Again, looking from the business side of this, not the personnel side, um, there are definitely some potential cost savings there um, for a company with a more remote workforce. Um, uh, frankly, I would not want to be in the traditional commercial real estate business right now. Um, I think that that has kind of a shaky future as more and more companies probably do realize that. Um, again, I, I'm not going to go as far to say, oh, we don't need an office. We don't need to do that. No, but maybe you don't need an office that can accommodate every employee at one time. Maybe rotating schedules and having some people remote and some people on site can work smaller spaces. Um, there can be massive cost reductions since the cost of rent in the uh, actual office space is definitely a huge cost that businesses incur. So it, it, there could be a good opportunity there. Um, so again, one big pro I see from employees and one big pro I see from the business side, but on the con side. Um, from a personal perspective, the biggest con to me is the disconnected teams. Um, maybe a business that struggles with culture now if everyone's always working remotely. Um, frankly, to me, it's almost less of a company and are more just employees. I don't know a better way to say it than that. Um, it's not impossible to have a, you know, a really strong culture and a great team. Um, we're lucky here at Market Scale. Um, our director of people and culture, Emily Rector, does an awesome job kind of keeping us all together and keeping us connected. Uh, I feel very fortunate to be there. However, I do have a lot of friends that work at other companies um, that I've talked to that uh, you know have mixed views about the remote work. Some of them are willing to get back. Um, some of them really can't wait to. Some of them are kind of indifferent about it. Um, some of them love working from home. But a theme I hear from all of them is this disconnected thing. And I mentioned that again, more than one half of remote employees feel disconnected from a team. That's something that I, I, I don't think enough, frankly, maybe enough employees view as maybe companies recognize this a little more than us uh, individual employees could in this regard. And when you're not with someone all the time, you're not with a team, you not only lose the 
Um, again, just the, the water cooler talks of the world, you know, the leaning over and asking someone how their weekend was, frankly, I can personally say I'm much less likely to do that on like a team's message or something. I should be better about it. Um, I have to constantly remind myself with my team here at market scale to, Hey, keep checking in on them. Um, see how things are going, try and keep that up. But frankly, it is much more of a, um, proactive effort on my end as from a, uh, manager's perspective, and when you kind of extrapolate it out to the business perspective, even more so. Uh, again, we're lucky at market scale because um, we have some great folks in place that have really done a good job helping us push this. But if you don't have that strong base, if you don't have some awesome people working in kind of the HR culture side, it can be very easy for an individual employee or for the entire company to kind of come more disjointed, not have those moments. Um, and from the business, uh, again, the con from the business side, I think uh, we mentioned a lot more security risks um, on an office network. You could do better. Yes, this can be you know assisted a lot with some investments in um, remote work infrastructure and things of that nature, as well as better training, better security protocols. Um, but there are some serious business risks there um, whenever you are having a bunch of employees work remotely. I, the the neutral point that I kind of landed on, which is kind of where I feel about this again, per, I'll just uh, personally speaking, um, there have been some nice things about this remote work period. Uh, if someone has to commute two and a half hours a day, there definitely is some time saving there. Um, but at the same time, that's also time that I typically would use to um, catch up on email, uh, learn, read, um, I'd take an online course, things like that. I haven't had nearly as much of that. And I, you know, I'm recognizing that I'm kind of missing and craving that. So I'm having to find a way to build that into this remote work uh, kind of schedule and structure that I have. Um, but the biggest kind of, again, this uh, this net neutral point to me that kind of washes a lot of these things out is that many jobs just don't really apply here and we uh, don't get too caught up maybe in the tech workforce um, and looking at it from that perspective. Think about the American economy as a whole. Again, 3.4% of people before this were working from home, 3.4% at least half the week. That's just not much. So um, whether it is you're in a retail industry, a service industry, um, here at MarketScale, we obviously work a ton in B2B. There's so many B2B manufacturers, remote working is never really going to work. It just isn't. You need people there. You need people producing. So I, I think there's a lot of things to consider on all sides. Um, I think uh, my, what I would encourage any listener out there to do is not necessarily feel one way, feel another, You know, change your mind in any regard, but Definitely consider all the points of it. Don't just look at it through your scope and your lens. Really step back and look at it from an objective perspective. What is gained, but what is also lost, and make sure you consider that. However, as we as we go through this, I can speak to this overall, and I found this great a couple of great articles to help me there. But really, what it honed in on to me in the last piece for this, I want to touch on is the impact in the data world of this. So, uh, let's step back for a second. If you think about it from a high level, uh, IT and analytics, things of that nature, very tech-oriented things are probably the first things that if you would consider well, who can go remote without issue or who maybe is more remote already than the rest of our uh, workforce, it's probably the people in my field, our field, um, the, the data tech IT world. So uh, the nature of the work lends itself, frankly, to less in-person, given that a lot of these things are done, a lot of analysis is done. Frankly, it's, it's one person sitting in behind a computer um, type in a whole bunch, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily require as much in-person, um, work or there's no production type aspect that really requires that in-person, 
um, communication or that in-person meeting. Um, and another thing, just frankly, I, I've noticed that more personalities that work in our field tend to be more introverted. They tend to be people who um, are okay being a little bit more to themselves compared to the more extroverted. And again, this is just an observation and a guess. There's no stats or science behind this. Um, I just I think there's probably more introverts in the DNA world than extroverts, at least compared to the general population, if I would imagine. Um, so again, all these things seem like, well, it should be easy for data to go remote. No, because there can be some serious, serious challenges you run into if communication is not handled properly when we're talking about a remote analytics team. Trying to discuss a lot of the topics that I've had to talk with my team over the last few months, I found there's one thing I miss more than anything. My team would occasionally sit around in my office. I have a big, um, awesome Claire's glass board in my office that we used to do a lot of brainstorming. And we could sit there for two hours and we would write on that board. You know, we would cover every inch of that board, erase 90% of it, cover every inch again, erase another 90%. We'd sit there and just have these working sessions with that whiteboard. And yes, I know there's people out there who are going to immediately say, well, hey, you can find an online platform, do the same thing. Yes, we absolutely can. But there was something actually about that that I always really enjoyed with the team aspect with my team. Um, it was a way that I could really, could really connect and join. And yes, there were some jokes and you could have some, you know, some camaraderie there outside of just the work. But some of our best ideas and the best things our team has ever come up with have come from sitting in those little sessions and just kind of talking through things. I, I miss that. And I can't wait to get back to the office personally to be able to have those with my team. Um, but even if you remove the brainstorming, you remove all that, there's one other big, big risk to me in terms of making analytics um, more remote or not worrying about them being as much of an in-person force. And that is that there is a already a systemic divide in a lot of companies between analytics and the business side sometimes. It's real easy to view the analytics department as a almost like a contractor of ways. You know, it's it's this group or division of your company that sometimes you can just hand problems or questions over to. They go do some incredible stuff with numbers and data and then come back with these answers. There's already a natural way to kind of um, separate that from the rest of the business. And I fear that if companies who have large analytics departments don't really, really, really pay attention to what's going on, you're going to have that much more of a divide between those departments. Um, you're not going to have as much collaboration. Um, something I love about, again, here at MarketScale, uh, not to brag too much about us, but we do a great job across departments, um, different leaders in our, that we have in our team that we're lucky enough to work with that come to me and talk through ideas, talk through problems, talk through potential solutions. And... We've been able to stem a lot of this, I think, and continue to work you know, remotely really well. But even I'd be lying if I said I don't think that there's some drop off we've had because I haven't been able to um, have the in-person conversations with Josh, our creative director, or Ben, our publications director, um, or any of the other teams that we have. Because if less you are taking those proactive steps to really stay connected, to make sure that the data doesn't become an outsourced project, that it is an integral part of the business, both in the planning, execution, operation, and the postmortem of any project or effort you're doing, it's real easy to lose the connection. And not only are you risking some of the culture things we talked about, some of the company camaraderie things you talked about, um, you could argue more importantly that you're going to have issues with actual projects themselves because people don't have the context. They don't have the information they need. Um, the analytics team isn't able to uh, find new solutions or hear things in a meeting and all of a sudden take off on this crazy brainstormed idea that leads to this incredible innovation or this incredible new product. So uh, though the data world 
might seem like it's incredibly inclined to going remote, I would encourage you to actually think about it the other way that maybe data is one of the most important teams to have in-house because of the opportunity it can open up by having that collaboration. So uh, to wrap this one up, I am going to leave you, I'm going to leave you four little tips. Three I got right from this great CMS Wire article, um, tips on leading remote analytics team. I think they're just, I can't say them better, so we're just going to go ahead and list them off. Um, and then one more that personally I found that really helped me. So from the article, the big three, get ready for distractions and proactively manage them. There are going to be challenges working remotely. There are going to be things in the data world that... Um, things are still going to come up as they always do and they always have even if you're working on a main project and that's you know where all the focus is supposed to be there's always going to be other projects whenever you're remote you have to be really careful not to let those little things splinter you away too much from your goal from your main objectives from the thing the business really needs you working on so get ready for those distractions and proactively manage them the second point center discussions around a central progress report. And I think this is great. And one of the things I was going to throw in and tie to this um, is setting benchmarks is often really, really helpful for me and has been um, throughout the situation because whenever you have a singular updated um, focus each week, again, a progress report, as they mentioned, um, some single source of truth, some single meeting that everyone gives these updates on, if you can maintain the focus of that big meeting on the big projects, on the important things, and keep driving back to that, it can help you avoid those distractions we just mentioned. It can help your team realize that, yes, maybe I have an hour or two to go dig into this, but hey, we have our weekly meeting next Monday and I need to be ready to deliver X, Y, and Z. If I don't go put my time and effort towards that, I'm not going to have X, Y, and Z. The third point made in this great article I found, plan who should be notified. How to address specific items and issues, who's on call, who's to be contacted, which person owns a certain tool or source or program or whatever it may be. Have a good plan for that because while in the office it can be really easy to walk over to maybe the analytics section or to a you know manager in the analytics team, whatever it may be, and say, hey, who do I talk to about X for whatever I'm having an issue with or have a question about? In the remote world, it can be more tricky. It requires maybe a little bit more one-on-one -on -one interaction with your team and other departments. So make sure there's a very clear structure as to which problems to go to which people, which questions should go to which people. So that way you guys aren't losing productivity and time running around, you know, asking the wrong people the wrong questions for lack of a better term. Again, I think those were three great tips. And the one other thing I'd add on there um, is as a leader, make sure you stay organized and ensure the team hits deadlines. That obviously is some, you know, business 101. It, that's nothing revolutionary there. But I found again through this experience that I need to stay that much more organized and on top of all the work going on to ensure that I can get ahead of those distractions I mentioned. We can make sure that we have that progress report and I'm keeping my view on everything so that we're tracking as we need to for those major projects. And also by staying even more plugged in, more organized, um, more connected with my team and the deadlines that they have, I'm able to ensure I know, again, the plan for who should be notified. I know exactly who that should be and my team knows who that should be. And we've been able to share with the other business units who those people would be because we've stayed on top of these things and we have a nice secure plan for if X, then go to Y. So all of that to say, remote work's a, a tricky thing. It's going to be very curious to see the way the world goes, um, and especially you know here at home in the U.S. and then around the world, how popular remote work comes. Um, but again, I would leave you with, for, make sure you objectively view this. Don't just look at it from a personal perspective. Think about both sides of this coin, because there absolutely are two sides of this argument. And then specifically in the data world, 
don't just assume because data and analytics seem like something that could be done completely remotely and don't require that contact. I would argue that they require it even more than any other business unit. So maybe don't make that mistake of just automatically making that assumption. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be back with our second story around the stock market and what's going on. Welcome back, everyone, to Diving Into Data. So stuck with us through the remote work session, uh, as we talked about at the beginning, again, our title this week is There Are Two Sides to Every Story. And so the last one I'm going to talk about is the stock market, something that frankly has kind of boggled my mind the last couple of months, the way things have gone. Um, before we get into the details there, again, always going to give credit to the awesome sources. Um, a great Washington Post article I found about how Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google were grilled on Capitol Hill over their market power last week. Probably was in the news, probably heard about that. Forbes had a great article on how the big five make up a record chunk of the S&P 500 and why that might be dangerous. Um, the two of those stories actually kind of conflict a little bit, and we're going to dive into why here in a second. The LA Business Journal had a good article on young investors driving increased use of investing apps. So uh, we're talking about millennials and Gen Z folks who are uh, using these new, the Robin Hoods of the world, stashes, things like that. Um, and then a Medium article about how Robin Hood specifically convinced millions to trade their way through the pandemic. So again, really two topics we're going to look at here, both relate to the stock market, but uh, very different takes on them. Um, and uh, overall, what we're talking about, the stock market's doing really well, frankly. If, we, if you were to tell me six months ago that, hey, we're about to go into a massive global pandemic, um, the likes of which, frankly, you know, it, the modern world, at least in the last hundred years, has never seen. And you also would even tell me that, hey, when the Q2 numbers come out on GDP, um, we're going to have a record 33% annual rate decrease of GDP. If you were to tell me those two things and ask me how the stock market was doing, I'd probably go running to um, our, you know, our accounting team and ask them to quickly transfer money out of my 401k. That would have been my natural instinct. However, when you look at the market, things are frankly really good. Um, I do think as an aside here, uh, before we dive into this, I think the optimism overall um, that we are getting closer and closer to vaccine. It's coming, folks. I promise it's, it's not far away. Um, we've handled it well generally as a country. Yes, numbers are high. Yes, it's a serious situation. There's a lot of negative, but there's a lot of really good things going on and a lot of positivity around this if you look hard enough. So um, I think that's obviously probably been the single biggest driver is the um, overall optimism. And I think, frankly, you know, correct optimism about the way we're going. Um, but again, there are multiple sides to a story. And when you talk about the stock market, you objectively think it's going to be really bad. Well, why isn't it? What has happened? And one of the biggest things I can touch on, um, we're gonna get into the stock apps and how they've impacted. I think that's kind of a hidden factor that maybe not enough people talk about, but probably the biggest single thing, um, much of the post recovery, what's happened since March, is people are dumping lots and lots of money into the mega cap tech stocks. So we're talking here again about Facebook, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, um, the big dogs of the world. So while S&P is down 1% in 2020 as of the time of that article, which is, I believe, a few days ago, again, only down 1% after a global pandemic. That's pretty freaking amazing. But at the same time, Facebook and Google are each up about 10%. Apple and Microsoft are up about 25%. Amazon is up an astonishing 57% as of the time of this article. It's almost up 60% on the year. It's freaking incredible. Huge. 
But these five companies, we're talking about how their stocks are up. As of now, they now make up almost 22% of the S&P 500. So that means the other 495 are only making up about 80% of it or 78% if we want to get specific. Um, that does obviously raise some concerns of kind of market concentration. Uh, the idea of those indexes specifically um, is that they're not too heavily reliant on any one company or any group of companies. They're you know a good predictor of uh, the American economy in, in whole. But these stocks have been viewed as a safe haven. Um, they have steady profits. They have an online business model that you know it was not going to be as impacted by COVID as a lot of other industries out there. So it makes sense while these are you know viewed as a safe haven and why it's safe. But as I mentioned in that other article, something that really is actually starting to concern me. While I don't think that concentration is necessarily bad, I think those huge companies do a lot of good and move the American economy forward really well there is some danger that governments are now leaning really hard on these tech giants. And I say now, but realistically, they have been for years and years. Um, just last week in Capitol Hill, they had the hearings for um, for those leaders around um, the market power and the market concentration they do have. Heck, it ties in a little bit with that 22%, obviously not directly, but the same general idea. Hey, you guys are really, really big and have a lot of power. Um, Again, frankly, I don't. I heard an argument on the radio the other day. I'm not sure I completely agree with it, but someone was saying that um, those companies now have as much of a stranglehold of the economy um, as everything short of back in the um, the Carnegie days, the U.S. Steels of the world, and things like that. And while I don't, I, I think that's a little hyperbolic and maybe a little over the top. Um, I get what they're trying to allude to. Um, there is a lot of concentration, so it makes sense why the government wants to lean in on this and kind of question this, poke holes in this. Obviously, you've seen you know story after story about taxes, this and that and the other thing. But this is one point where I'm not sure the government, we need you guys to step in here. Um, while I understand and there needs to be regulations and safeguards in place, sure. Um, but the more the government leans on them, the less safe haven these stocks become. And frankly, again, it, it, you can almost argue that the government right now is trying to interject and kind of pinpoint the exact companies that have kept the stock market afloat. The reason that our stock market is doing so well among the optimism, among the other things, is these big tech companies and these safe haven opportunities that they offer um, for investors, which has allowed people to keep money in the markets. No one's pulling out the money and shoving it under the, old, the good old mattress. People are able to put these stocks because they have um, almost you know the bond option of a stock, if you want to kind of look at it that way, more safe, secure um, almost certainly always going to get steady profits and keep on growing no matter what happens stock. So I, I would, I, if I were, uh, the government asked my opinion, which of course they did not and would not, but I'd say, uh, let's be careful at least until we get through this economic recovery period that things are going really well. Um, there's a lot of optimism. I'm optimistic things are going to keep getting better, but let's not go too far and uh, rock that boat too much. Um, but in addition to the big five, Another thing that I've read a lot about recently, um, it's really, really been a personal curiosity of mine. Um, another big source of the stock influx, one of the reasons that the stock market recovered so quickly from that major crash back um, in early, late February, early March timeframe, was that there's this new medium, there's a new opportunity for people to get into buying stocks and trading stocks. And what we're talking about are these stock trading apps. So the Robinhoods of the world, Stash, Albert, Acorns. I'm sure there's a dozen others out there that I've never even heard of, but they are these apps that make it incredibly easy for a user to set up a profile, transfer some money quickly from the banker and put even very small amounts of money 
and be able to buy stock very easily, um, almost no cost for a lot of these things, and be able to easily kind of just translate themselves into and put themselves into a you know a broker position where yes, we're dealing with one one hundred thousandth of what a uh, broker would actually do, but these people are able to drop five dollars in Amazon stock if they want. And yes, that's a tiny little piece of one Amazon stock, but you're able to do these things through the app and it's so easy. It's as easy as just searching in an app, clicking a button and typing in an amount you want to buy and hit and go. Um, and what this has really opened up for, I think, is the largest chunk of these users, according to that LA Business Journal article, are between 26 and 35. So we're talking about millennials here. We're talking about a younger generation who, um, folks who maybe have not gotten far enough in their career to be heavy investors um, the way that someone in their you know 60s or 50s um, who has a lot of experience has. I can speak from personal experience and tell you that I absolutely am in this group. I'm part of this, you know, that age range and... I was not a heavy investor outside of my 401k and a couple of just very set funds that I had um, for around retirement and college planning for the kiddos and stuff. A lot of what I did, I, I didn't really deal with actual, you know, the ups and downs of the stock market. Besides that, I opened up a stash account personally, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. Yes, it's tiny amounts of money that, uh, you know, I, it's not going to, I'm not retiring anytime soon for my actions here, but it's kind of cool and it's made me more engaged. It's made me more interested. It's made me more aware of the economy. And as someone who studied economics, I didn't really think that that would be a thing, but it absolutely has kind of tied me in um, a little bit more. And every one of these platforms I mentioned again, Robinhood, Stash, Albert, Acorns, they all saw a 20 to 40% increase in active users during the pandemic. It's an easy, accessible way for these younger folks um, to dip their toe in the stocks and while there is some risk there because these younger folks, um, there are tons of stats out there also that uh, my generation isn't the best at saving. Um, not a lot of people have a lot of money in the bank, so maybe these folks shouldn't be you know, playing with that money and, spend, and risking it in the stock market. Um, another thing to consider is, well, why are they doing this? 33% of millennials and Generation Z lost their jobs due to COVID compared to 9% of Gen X. So again, a third of millennials and Gen Z's uh, employment was impacted by COVID. That's frankly, it's more time. It's easy technology. It's able something I can easily just get an app on my phone that everyone in that generation is walking around with a smartphone, let's be honest. Um, and this leads to a lot more opportunity for new users, new investors, however big or however small. Uh, I think a great way to kind of look at this, if you think, well, okay, is this is this really an influence? Uh, this story kind of blew my mind and maybe maybe it's just me, but um, this article I was reading about how, as again, it was a medium article about how Robinhood convinced millions to trade their way through the pandemic. Um, if you don't know Robinhood well, um, on March 2nd, um, which was a Monday, was the day the markets rallied after the markets had done really, really bad the last like week or so of February when things were starting to look worse and worse, the markets rallied like crazy. And Robinhood crashed. Robinhood was down almost the entire day. Um, what day that probably, if you pinpoint one day out of the last couple of years, that all of the platform users would want to be on there and be buying and trading and looking at stuff and following it, the app crashed. It wasn't working. You might think, well, if you are a stock trading app um, and you crash on the best day to trade stocks, that's probably going to do some really bad stuff for you. And you wouldn't be entirely wrong. There's a lot of former Robinhood users that were very upset that either pulled their funds out immediately or at least on Twitter threatened to. Um, obviously, we haven't gone and reviewed these folks' accounts, I don't think. But it took them less than two weeks to make up from all those lost users of all that negative exposure, you could say, for around that incident. Two weeks, and they had already had a net positive 
um, number of users from that because they were getting so many new people that were interested again in these generations and diving in. Um, our, just to give you an idea, Robinhood's valuation is now up to 8.3 billion. There's huge potential in that company and these apps um, in this way. I don't think that this these stock trading apps and this type of idea is a flash in the pan. And even though it might have, again, going back to it got you know a little bit of jet fuel thrown in there from the whole COVID thing, I think this is something that could become the future of a lot of the fintech stuff. And that was one quote that really stuck out to me. It's a poster child of fintech success. Um, and as financial technology, marketing technology, as all this technology continues to advance and lower the bar on so many things, um, I think this is a great way of viewing this and kind of seeing how these apps do. Um, frankly, I, I would invest in these apps if it were me. I, I, I think that these are now it's a good question. You know, maybe are there too many of them? Is there going to be some conglomeration down the line? Sure, of course. Um, but uh, this this lower bar has allowed folks to put money back into the stock markets. Um, it has allowed, uh, I think, at least a little bit, help buoy so again some of that recovery we're seeing. And while yes, there's you know you could say there's a big risk because all these you know little millions of small investors um, that are putting money into this and what's this going to do long term um, as the economy really shakes out and the full recovery comes full circle, I, I would venture this. And again, the, we're done talking facts now. This is purely a prediction on my end. I think that this actually just helps us get out of this quicker. Um, both the big tech um, safe havens that we have, um, the ability of these apps to connect people. I think both these things are pushing us where we were already going as a economy and as a country. We were already going to get out of the, over this. Um, the economy was great before this. It's going to be great again after this. We just got to get through this really rough patch. And I think that these things have kind of helped, um, you know, uh, raise the floor of how far the floor dropped out. And so as we roll out a vaccine, as things continue to get better, it's going to be interesting to see the way the two of those kind of shake out, both how the big five and their relationship maybe with the U.S. government, as well as the growth and utilization of these stock apps, how that changes as things continue to get back to normal um, again, sooner rather than later in this host's opinion. With that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up our show today. I appreciate you joining us on another episode of Diving Into Data. Again, our title today, there are two sides to every story, looking at remote work and the stock market and how uh, there's always you know two arguments on every side. Don't always consider one opinion. Make sure you get the full picture. We appreciate you guys joining us. Again, we'll be back here next week unless the, uh, the wife has a baby between now and then, in which case I'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. But until then, take care. See ya.